Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. and I think everyone was a bit startled. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the FT Business Book Challenge podcast, the place to discover the best in business writing. I'm Helen Barrett, the FT's work and careers editor. This podcast is simple. We're challenging you to read six classic business books in 12 weeks. Each book is chosen by an FT columnist. We give you two weeks to read it, then we all regroup to ruminate on it. In episode six, Andrew Hill, our management editor, set our last book, The Wisdom of Crowds, by James Suryaki. Andrew is here, and so is Isabel Berwick, assistant comment editor. Welcome both. Hello. 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 (laughs) We'll be discussing The Wisdom of Crowds, a book that promises to change forever the way you think about human behaviour. But before we get to that, here's the question we love to start with. Andrew, what are you reading at the moment? So I've just finished um, Paul Beatty's The Sellout, which was the Man Booker Prize winner this year that uh, Emma Jacobs mentioned on our last uh, podcast. It's obviously a satire, American, African-American writer talking about uh, or using the satire to um, really puncture a lot of the assumptions and presumptions of of American society and its attitude towards African-Americans. And I didn't like it. I you really didn't like didn't it. Didn't like it. No. Why? I I found it very dense. I enjoyed some of the individual jokes. There's some quite great wordplay in it, but uh, it didn't hit the mark for me. In fact, it really made me nod off a few times just because I couldn't work my way through it. I I, I wonder really, as a white Englishman, whether I am the target audience. Although it is provocative in lots of ways that I could easily understand. But I didn't, um, it, I just didn't take to it. There's something about satire these days that I sometimes find a bit sledgehammerish, and that was the case despite the rather deft wordplay that he, he weaves into it. Isabel, have you read it? I haven't, although it's on my list, but I'm just reviewing that list now. And what else are you reading, Andrew? <laughs> well, you pulled me out there. I just came with one large book that I just finished, and the... <laughs> I can tell you what I'm about to read. What are you about to read? So I've got next on my list, I've got uh, Umberto Eco's last novel, Numero Zero, uh, which is set in Milan um, in the um, early 90s when I was the Milan correspondent, which is one of the reasons why I'm keen to read it. It's supposed to be a a thriller stroke conspiracy theory about uh, a journalist in Milan in in the early 90s. So I'm rather looking forward to seeing whether he conjures up the same atmosphere that I took away from Milan. A lot of the reviews talk about its kind of ill-lit underbelly. I'm not sure I really explored that when I was a correspondent there, but uh, uh, looking forward to that. Mm. Do you think you appear in it? 
I think that's doubtful since I never <laughs> met Umberto Eco and I had no involvement, as I say, in the ill-lit underbelly. It must be quite exciting to discover yourself in, in fiction, fictionalised. Is- Isabel, what are you reading? Well, I'm reading a very short book, in fact a pamphlet, uh, by one of our FT contributors, Margaret Heffernan, and it's called More Than a Dream, Feminist Utopians, and it's one of those very beautifully produced and typeset limited edition pamphlets. I'm getting quite obsessed with them. I, you know, the, the beauty of the object is a thing for me now, the analogue, which is what we're all into. Um, she's writing about Mary Wollstonecraft, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and Shulamith Firestone, who the latter I hadn't heard of, shame on me, as a, a great American feminist. It's very short, it's very powerful, and um, very beautiful. Yeah, she, she sent that to me, in fact, and I had a look, and it's, it's a bit like the future of books, actually, apart from anything else, apart from the content being rather great. Mm, it comes with a lovely poster. In what way is it the future of books? Well, in that uh, the ability to produce something that is also a rather beautiful artefact, as well as having, as Isabel says, provocative and interesting and new content, seems to me to be one way in which books will go. The, another way is obviously the technological ebook. Might this be how books survive in, in physical form by making them increasingly yes, like desirable? it's the same as the vinyl revival. I think the beauty of the thing, you know, the tangibility of it. Um, I was really quite taken with this and, and I, there have been a few and I think a lot of the big publishers are producing these very small, rather beautiful uh, little books that you can read on the tube and they're, they're just a lovely thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Folio Society has done this for years, hasn't it? And, there's, you know, everybody, parents probably had these great tomes on the shelf that were sort of in some way not meant to be read. They're, they're almost anti-penguins, aren't they? This... Yes, although I think the, the new, the sort of revival of it is much more accessible, I think, the revival of the pamphlet. I mean, maybe we are in a new age of activism going back to the sort of the Coleridge and the, you know, the age of the pamphlet may be upon us again. But it does raise the question of what you then do with the beautiful artefact when you've read it, because a wall full of pamphlets, I'm not sure, is going to stand up quite as well. You no, know, perhaps I'll put my lovely poster up. You could do that. <laughs> Which brings us nicely to this week's chosen book, also short, also powerful, 2004's The Wisdom of Crowds, Why the Many Are Smarter Than the Few, by James Siriecki. As always, here's the blurb. History tells us that when you want something done, you turn to a leader, right? Wrong. If you want to make a correct decision or solve a problem, large groups of people are smarter than a few experts. This brilliant and insightful book shows why the conventional wisdom is so wrong and why the theory of the wisdom of crowds has huge implications for how we run our businesses, structure our political systems and organise our society. Andrew, what makes this a classic business book? Well, I read this book when it came out in uh, 2004 and I loved it, but I haven't really gone back to it uh, until uh, I was looking for a recommendation for this show. And one of the things I noticed on rereading is that um, having read it long before I realised my boyhood dream of being management editor, (laughs) uh, uh, I've actually been inadvertently plagiarising Jim Soriecki since then uh, because a lot of the ideas in there are the seeds of things that other books and other thinking has now uh, has picked up and that I've picked up in writing columns about management uh, over the last four or five years. So things uh, such as uh, the need for greater diversity in groups to avoid groupthink and not just diversity by by gender or by race but particularly by cognition and the type of thinking 
that you would bring into a group. The overall premise uh, is obviously that um, the crowd can come up with a better solution than small groups of experts. And given that the book was written in 2004, before we had uh, the full exploration of social media in Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere, uh, and obviously before the uh, financial crisis of 2007-8, and clearly long before uh, we've had Brexit with its uh, disdain for experts and the election of Donald Trump, uh, there are lots of things there that look to me like the seeds of interesting uh, discussions. And then in, the, in, a, in a purely um, corporate sense, um, there's a lot of great interesting work in there about decentralisation and the way in which autocratic companies and organisations tend towards failure with for their dependence on individuals at the top. One of my recent columns is about uh, the org chart and the way in which hierarchy uh, works against the best interests of uh, of companies when it's wrongly implemented. And there's a lot of that in the book. So I, I guess I have to apologise to Jim Soriecki for having stolen some of his ideas for recent, recent columns without really remembering. Because crowds aren't always right, are they, in the book? There's certain conditions that need to be in place before crowds will make the best decision. That's right. And, and one of them is that they're getting independent information, that they're not herding towards, uh, in the example of stock markets, towards a, a bubble situation. And there are clearly areas where experts have important knowledge that they can impart. But some of the most striking examples, uh, one of them early in the book, is the example of a submarine that sank and nobody knew where it had sank. They knew certain data. And this was put out uh, to a variety, a wider range of people to make their best guess. None of the individual guesses was correct, but collectively they came to a conclusion that found the submarine within 200 yards, I think, of, of the spot that they had identified. 20 metres. Was 20 metres. Yeah. And crucially, the experts weren't allowed to confer. They made their guesses independently, and this is another condition, isn't it? Uh, yes, the independence point is one that I, I think is interesting because, of course, we've had a number of these events since the book came out. And one of the things that intrigues me is whether we have now created through social media and through various, if you like, bubbles in which we individually sit, a kind of version of multiple groupthinks for the crowd. In other words, we've kind of created an accelerator for groupthink in the form of Twitter and Facebook and other media where we're much more dependent on the views of our friends, who inevitably will probably be of the same type of thinking, sharing the same information, almost like great herding machines that are pushing us to the same decisions. So that's one of the questions that, that it raises uh, on what has happened since the book came out. It's also, it strikes me, very interesting. Apart from anything else, it has great examples. I think it was one of the first books that certainly I read that fits that model of looking at a lot of the social science and behavioural science and attaching this to great stories. So rather, for example, in writing about bubbles, rather than picking some of the obvious manias like the great Dutch tulip bubble, <laughs> uh, 
the author goes for the bowling alley bubble of the 1950s, which I knew nothing about before reading the book, which was essentially when somebody invented an automated bowling pin locator, which did away with uh, the people who worked in bowling alleys and reset the pins after every every time, created this great idea that bowling was going to become hugely popular, which it did for a while, and then the uh, the mania died away, and the companies that had been invested in uh, lost their stock price, plummeted. So these examples, unexpected examples, are one of the great joys of this book, I think. It really is a, a rich trove of examples. One of my favourites was the uh, the example of uh, Zara, the fashion chain, and the the clothes being um, delivered uh, fortnightly to uh, Manhattan uh, stores uh, two weeks after they'd been designed. Um, Isabel, what did you think of the book? I came to this fresh. I hadn't uh, even heard of it, I'm ashamed to say, and I, I loved it. I really loved it, and I think... What was so interesting was it, it was written, you know, more than a decade ago. It it does feel dated in, in many respects, but throughout you're thinking, how is that impacting us now? And there are so many things to take away, particularly when you've worked in an office environment. There are many things you can take from this on your on one's day to day in terms of the small group think and just you know looking at it with fresh eyes. And then, as Andrew was saying, all the social media stuff that we now have to overlay on that. I mean, I I particularly liked in the financial side it talks about the long-term capital management debacle and how that happened. And actually, at its very heart, that was a really human problem. The hedge fund was dealing in really very esoteric instruments that were only held or known about by a few people, for example, Danish mortgages. And all the people who are expert in Danish mortgages realised what long-term capital management were up to and, of course, realised that the, you know, the very fact that they were onto this, you know, then they started to price things differently. I just thought, you know, the fact that that was completely overlooked in what became a huge trigger for a financial meltdown, you know, really something as simple as a few people in Denmark, I just found it blew my mind somewhat. I mean, it sets out the case beautifully against groupthink, doesn't it? And although um, the author doesn't talk about hiring particularly, it it makes you... Well, I I became very aware of, of the risk of hiring in your own image. Yes, and I think actually what was missing from this book... Um, I mean, Andrew's mentioned, James talks about diversity, but it's diversity of thought and of attitude and of, you know, background. It wasn't talking about diversity in the way that we would talk about diversity now in terms of, you know, women, non-white people, people from different backgrounds. And so that's interesting. What I would I'd love to hear what James has got to say about how things have moved on since then. Well, we just so happen to have him ready to talk to us on the line. James Siriecki, hello. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. Could you tell us about why you wrote The Wisdom of Crowds? Uh, Well, I actually, in some ways, the roots of the book came out of my thinking about financial markets. So I kind of came to business writing uh, from the outside. I had been a graduate student in American history and sort of ended up writing about business and, and investing somewhat by chance. And... One of the things I found odd about the way people thought about markets was that academic writing on markets, so kind of classic economic thinking about markets, assume that human beings are rational, that they have perfect information, perfect foresight. That's sort of what the classic kind of efficient market models are built on. But when you actually look at what investors are like, it's very clear they're none of those things. They are irrational. They have you know, different sources of information. They act on very different time horizons. 
And yet, collectively, it seemed like markets do a relatively good job, not by any stretch of the imagination perfect, as we have seen many times, but they seem to do a relatively good job of aggregating information, coming up with forecasts, etc. And so I, I was intrigued by, well, how is this possible? How do you end up with these take all these really imperfect people and you put them all together and collectively they come up with, you know, relatively good judgments. So that was where I started and then, you know, started to do all this work and and discovered that there actually was a lot of research into the broader phenomenon of how crowds make decisions and whether they're good at it or bad or how they solve problems. A lot of work that had been done, you know, in the 40s and 50s but a lot of it had just been forgotten or lost, and, and I felt like no one had really sort of tried to systematize it in a way. And so that was really the genesis of it. And then, you know, you, you, you alluded to some of the stories in the book, and, and so I would come across these stories. And the book begins with this story by, that, about Francis Galton, the, the British scientist who ran this kind of experiment by chance where he, he was at a fair and, and these uh, – and people were guessing the weight of an ox. And uh, as Galton was watching this, he said, oh, let's see what the collective judgment of the group is. And, and he, Galton, famously is a, was a, a notorious elitist, so he, of course, thought the group was going to be way off the mark. And, and in fact, the group's judgment was incredibly accurate. And you know, when I came across that, I thought, oh, <laughs> there's actually something big here. Not, it's, this isn't just some coincidence. This is actually like something real. And, and that was really kind of where the, the book sort of sprang from. And uh, you started uh, with the uh, the book at the time in the in the wake of the first dot com bust, and you yeah. refer to that obviously in the, in the passages about the financial markets. But clearly, it it predated the much bigger financial crisis. And I must admit, I wondered, with hindsight, whether you had, uh, if you had been writing it now, or indeed in the wake of that much bigger crisis, whether you'd have adjusted any of the any of the views that you had there about the particularly interesting, I thought, were the passages about trust and Wall Street and the use of sort of self-interest as a kind of moderator of of, of the worst excesses of, of banks. Because that was, of course, the famous point that Alan Greenspan made in testimony, saying he'd overestimated the self-interest of banks as a as a moderator of, uh, of their worst excesses. So I just wondered yeah. whether there were ways in which you would have now rethink the, some of those passages. Yeah, so, so I, I guess I would say two things about that. I, I, I think the broader model in the book of why financial markets in particular can go wrong, I think that still is pretty accurate, that the, the real problem that markets run into is, is, you know, you can call them kind of diversity breakdowns. So when everyone basically becomes somewhat homogenous in their thinking, uh, and then markets have this perennial problem, which is connected to that of, as you guys alluded to already, of, of, of kind of dependence rather than independence. So where everyone is paying attention to everyone else, this is Keynes's famous model of, of the stock market as a, uh, a contest in which people are trying to, I mean, Keynes was, was talking about a, a beauty contest, but where people are not trying to pick who they think the most attractive person is, but who they think everyone else thinks the most attractive person is. And it becomes this kind of self-reinforcing loop. Um, and, and I think markets, that's actually a perennial problem. I mean, one of the ironies for me is that I came to the book, by, by start, I started by trying to think about why markets work well. And in the end, I sort of, I think, concluded um, 
for myself that markets actually don't work as well as, at least not in the real world, as other kinds of ways of accessing the wisdom of crowds. So, so that's the one first thing. Um, the second thing, which is this question of trust, and, and uh, I sort of make this argument in the book that uh, that the trust is really central to um, basically how capitalism in particular tends to work um, and why it works well, um, and and how do you construct relationships of trust among you know large groups of people, societies. Yeah, I think that um, for me when I think about the financial crisis and the banks in particular, um, I do think you see obviously a failure of sort of long-term self-interest to win out, that banks were remarkably willing to sacrifice their long-term futures for, in effect, short-term gains. My real opinion about that is a lot of that has to do with the complete mismatch between the incentives that individuals within the organizations had and the sort of health of the organization as a whole. And you do, um, and you do touch on that in the book. Yeah, yeah, that's something that I'm sort of interested in I mean, kind of working on a little bit now is this, you know, how do you actually get organizations to think long-term um, when individuals are often incentivized to act in short-term ways? And I think the banks are the most extreme example of doing that very poorly. So, right. you know, that's the famous phrase in the banking industry, the, you know, you, you make a deal, uh, it's the IBG, YBG deal, which is, you know, I'll be gone, you'll be gone. So it doesn't really matter what happens right. afterwards because neither of us are going to pay the price. So I do think that, but, but of course that just takes it back a separate level, which is, well, why were organizations willing to do that? Why didn't they see this stuff? And so I think it is, it's a very it's a complicated question, I think. I mean, the other, the other obvious question, which is, the, uh, th- is this year's news, obviously we've had the uh, vote for Brexit here, in which um, many of the Leave side said that they disdained the views of experts. So that seems consonant with your conclusion about the wisdom of crowds. And then the the vote for Trump. And your resounding conclusion to the whole book is about the value of democracy. And I'll just read out a little passage. You say democracy helps people answer questions about uh, working together because it's an experience, democracy, of not getting everything you want, an experience of seeing your opponents win and get what you hope to have and of accepting it because you believe that they won't destroy the things you value and because you know you'll have another chance to get what you want. So there's not there's not much acceptance around in the uh, in the United States at the moment. Yeah, well, I'll put, I, I'll say, let me say a couple of things about that. The democracy chapter was the hardest chapter for me to write because the case for democracy uh, for the wisdom of crowds in politics is is different i think from the case for the wisdom of crowds in a lot of the other situations i talk about in the book and the way i the way i think about it is the wisdom of crowds works really well when there is a kind of true answer in some uh, let's call it platonic sense. So it's not even that we'll know necessarily that the answer was true, but, but that we can say, you know what, there's a right answer. So if you're a company and you are trying to com- contemplate, you know, five different projects that you want to invest in, and we can say, you know, in, in, in some sense there is one of those that's best for the companies, whatever, however you want to define best, but let's say for the bottom line or, or return on capital or whatever it is. Um, and, and in democracy, you have the problem of people have radically different ideas about what, what, what good it is, basically. We just have very, very, very different ideas. So, 
So I think the case for democracy is much more about avoiding the excesses of tyranny, of individual leaders, of groupthink, etc., of the diversity that you get from a democratic system, from hearing many different voices. But I think that, you know, if you think about the passage you read, I think the concern a lot of people have about Trump is that, you know, are we going to get another chance to, 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 to sort of take back power? Not necessarily in the sense that Trump is going to, you know, become Hugo Chavez or whatever, uh, but in the sense that, you know, are the Republicans basically going to take this and run with it and, and basically do so much damage that we'll, we won't be able to get back? Now, th- that's probably very well maybe overstated, um, but... You know, I think that is the concern a lot of a lot of people have, um, and you're right. There's very little acceptance, um, but th- you know that's true on both sides. I think I think that's I think that's true on both sides. Isabel, did you want to ask yeah. some questions? I, I found what was really interesting was the way you differentiated at the end uh, between crowds and mobs, and I thought that was so pertinent to what's happening now. And and what you say is that the mob differs from other large groups because it's easier to go unidentified. And you give the example of the people. Uh, trying to egg people on to commit suicide by jumping off bridges. They stop their cars and they get out and they shout jump. And I found that that actually made me stop with a sharp intake of breath because it, it, it just goes to the heart of everything that's happening now. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, uh, yeah, there really, I mean, there are these examples I talk about in the book of, of literally a, you know, a woman on a bridge and, and people underneath, you know, telling her to jump. And, and, uh, and I think that anonymity in that sense plays plays a role, that, that there's a kind of lack of consequence that people feel. I think the other thing that's very clear about mobs, and, and this gets to something really important that, that you all have talked about earlier, and that is that in a mob, people's opinions, people's decisions, people's willingness to act is really shaped by what's going on around them. So in some important sense, they aren't really acting or thinking uh, independently. It's not that they're just, you know, that they just kind of lose all control, but they, they, what they do really depends on what those around them are doing. And, and I think that that does have um, real relevance to what we're seeing um, in, in the case of Brexit, what we're seeing in the case of, certainly what we were seeing in the case of Trump. Certainly you could see it at, say, Trump rallies, things like that. And, you know, I think the broader issue that you all brought up, and I think is really interesting, is this question of the Internet and social media specifically and how that has kind of reshaped, you know, the whole idea of independence and, and what we do with it. I think that, that is obviously the, the biggest thing that would be different if I wrote the book today. You know, when I wrote it in 2004, the Internet obviously existed, but, you know, most of the things that we think of as social media or things like Wikipedia were either just in their nascent stages or didn't even exist. And that, I think, is obviously a, a big difference in terms of the way people get information, talk to each other, and so on. So on the question then of whether Twitter and social media are accelerators for this kind of mass groupthink, if you like, uh, and particularly now we're hearing about the or, or, or learning about the sort of fake news uh, which can now be perpetrated through these channels... Uh, does that then change your view about the wisdom of crowds under these circumstances? Well, it, it certainly, I think, makes it more challenging to satisfy the conditions um, that I sort of lay out in the book. I mean, I, as you all said, I, I think the, you know, in a way, I think the most important 
aspect of the book, if, if it does anything, is, is to say this is what is necessary if you want to try to, to, get, to take advantage of the wisdom of crowds. You, know, you need the crowds to be diverse. You need them to be uh, the people in them to be independent. Ideally, you want them to be decentralized in some form. When I think about the Internet, I think it's actually really paradoxical because on the one hand, the Internet is actually potentially the greatest sort of source of diversity. You know, it allows you to access and, and a tremendous tool for accessing the wisdom of crowds because it allows you to access people from all over the world with great ease and, you know, very low transaction costs. Um, uh, it allows you as individuals, it allows us access to an incredible range of knowledge and opinions and all this stuff. I mean, it's this extraordinary kind of cacophony of, of voices. Uh, and actually, I mean cacophony in a good sense, not a bad sense. Uh, but I think in practice, the way most of us use the Internet, or let's say many of us, I shouldn't say most, the way many of us use the Internet is in a more narrow self-reinforcing way. And I think social media in particular has probably amplified that problem, the kind of echo chamber problem where you primarily hear the voices of people who you agree with, and that tends to reinforce your ideas, et cetera, et cetera. And fake news has, you know, to the extent it exists, I think has really probably amplified that problem. I think one of the questions is the people who are really buying into fake news, in a sense, already living in the echo chamber and want to live in the echo chamber. But I do think that the fake news problem amplifies that. The way I think about the Internet is if you want to use it well is to try to – there's this phrase, weak links, um, rather than strong links. So you know, try to keep many weak links rather than just listening to a few people that you're – or a few sites or whatever. That, that, I think, actually makes the Internet valuable rather than problematic. Um, but I think it's not it, – it, it, it's, it's very tricky. Social media, I think, has really complicated – uh, how we make decisions or, uh, you know, decisions may be overstating it, but, you know, sort of how we think collectively, because I do think it it can make it very easy to amplify the problems of groupthink or herding and, and the rest of it. So one point that uh, occurred to me, as I mentioned, uh, quite a lot of what you've written in the book about business and management and the implications remain, remains highly relevant. Um, but I wondered whether there were ways in which you thought that business had changed to perhaps improve the way it, it works, perhaps taking up some of the suggestions that you make in the, in the book about uh, improved diversity of thinking, uh, greater ways of uh, improving transparency, involving staff. These are all things that business say they're going to do, but as we often see, um, they don't always carry them through. Yeah, I do think things have gotten, I guess I'll say in a broad sense, better. In, in some ways, I think the most important concrete implications of the book are for businesses or, let's say, government organizations, and how they should be run internally, the importance of sort of breaking down hierarchies, doing a better job of listening to you know your employees uh, and recognizing that there's a tremendous amount of knowledge in in your employees that that most of the time just doesn't get used um, because it just never rises to the surface so i think organizations have tried to do a better job of listening to their employees of try to do a better job in sort of how they think about their workforces of having a greater diversity of background, greater diversity of thought, et cetera. I do think that the old traditional kind of command and control model is not as operative in the corporate world as it was. H having said that, I, I am still 
when I talk to companies, when I look at how companies work, I am still struck by how top-down most companies are uh, and how much faith we still have in the sort of single leader. You know, when I talk about the book, people often will bring up the Steve Jobs example and say, well, what about Steve Jobs? And, um, you know, and, and I guess my answer is, you know, if you know your CEO is Steve Jobs, uh, then there's a logic to, to listening to him or her, I guess. Um, but even Steve Jobs, if you actually look at his history, did a surprisingly good job of um, incorporating lots of different views and getting people to work together rather than in silos and the, and the rest. And I think the case for autocratic leaders really doing more harm than good is is pretty impeccable. I think you know the evidence for that is pretty overwhelming. Yeah, I think, so the, I would, I think the evidence for that is actually in, increasing, and certainly the research evidence, as far as I've looked at it. No, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, there's just there's just no question about that. And um, and so I think that you know I, I think there's still a long way for companies in general to go. And and even on the diversity front, diversity is something that I think everybody pays lip service to. And, and I mean diversity both of background but also diversity of, of thought. But I do think it's hard. I think it's difficult for organizations and, and for especially for very successful people to really sit in meetings and, and allow other people who have different ideas to really speak. But again, I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming that that's the only way you can really get to really, really good group decisions. And that when you surround yourself with people who agree with you, even though it's very flattering and self-reinforcing, it's typically a recipe for bad decisions. And so I, I think there's still a long way for, for corporations to go. Just a final quick question. What's the verdict of the crowd been on the wisdom of crowds? Have sales? Have you tracked sales and realized that there's a resurgence of interest in the book in the current climate, or, or has it been a long tail? I think it's actually, well, I think it's somewhere in between. I mean, I think the one thing that was interesting about I think one thing that's interesting about the book is I think the book was in some ways a little ahead of its time. Um, and, and I don't mean that in like, a, oh, I'm patting myself on the back, just kind of what we've talked about. In, in some ways, it was a little bit before um, the, the Internet really hit, uh, the kind of collective element of the Internet really hit and stuff. And so I think one thing that happened with the book was that it had a – it has had a relatively long life. Um, and I do think that it is the kind of um, book that probably – has remained relevant in a way that I couldn't necessarily have imagined. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. The verdict of the crowd seems seems reasonably good on the wisdom of crowds, I guess. Thank you very much, James Suriecki. You're welcome. I'd like to bring in Yanina Conboy, our producer, who's been to the FT Library to find out how we reviewed the book in 2004. Yanina, what did you find? I'm quite surprised that we haven't actually mentioned the book as often as I thought we might, but we did do a review of the book in June 2004. John Gapper did the review, and he gave quite a positive review of the book. One thing he did highlight, he um, said, as readers of Suryeki's writings in The New Yorker will know, he has a rare gift for combining rigorous thought with entertaining examples. It is packed with amusing ideas that leave the reader feeling better educated. Um, but he did say the book's weakness is that um, Suryeki has um, such a fund of stories and academic studies that it can get tiring. He also overreaches a little in trying to fit all manner of phenomena and business case studies into a grand unified theory of everything. Isabel, did you get tired by the number of case studies? 
No, I absolutely love case studies. I get a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm I'm someone who goes very much for the the personal angle, especially in a business book where things can get quite dry. I think this book was a really good combination of a uh, huge amount of information, but imparted in a very painless way. Yeah, I mean, it, it, his his style was quite similar to someone like Malcolm Gladwell, wasn't it? It's accessible, um, but there's some there's some difficult ideas here that are you know, explained in a very accessible way. Who else do you think he writes like? It was a little bit like Tim Harford, our own Tim Harford, actually. I thought I thought that in the way that he he is writing in a very, you know, accessible style, but, but I mean, he's slightly ahead of the main behavioural economics curve, actually, with this book. As he was saying, yes, he was a little bit ahead of his time. Um, but, I, I, you know, I've read quite a lot of behavioural economics books, and I think this is... You know, and this is a wider piece, and, it, and I thought it was better than a lot of them, although not obviously the work of our own Tim, Tim Harford, which, is, <laughs> which I really love. We started our book award the year after this book appeared, and it was always the book that I thought if we'd started it a year earlier, it might well have been certainly on the shortlist. And in fact, on the shortlist in the first year we did the book award, 2005, was Freakonomics, and I think that's also a book that triggered a yes. wave of similar books. I have to say, much as I love this book, I think this style that uh, the John Gapper review slightly criticises is now a bit getting a bit played out. I think we're probably, we've had a lot of books and maybe Michael Lewis's book about uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman, mm. which is about to come out, is the might be the, the kind of bookend, if you like, for these types of books about ideas popularised. But that's actually gone all, it's almost gone full circle. Exactly. It's almost a biography, isn't it, of yes. a friendship. Yes, exactly. Um, so it's gone right, drilled right down into the personal. Janina, what else did you find? There was an article in 2008 by James Harkin, headlined The World Wise Web, The Cleverness of the Billions Online. And this moves into crowdsourcing. So they're talking about the wisdom of crowds. And then James Harkin writes... If Suryeki was the Karl Marx of the movement, favouring rule by many, how, who is a journalist for Wired magazine, is its Lenin? How is focused on how to turn theory into lucrative practice? More than Suryeki too, he believes the internet is capable of unleashing the wisdom of the crowd. The more than one billion people online across the world between them have two billion to six billion spare hours. He says that time could be used on crowdsourcing projects. The anonymity of the net, he argues, offers a perfect meritocracy. Suryeki suggested that the wisdom of crowds would work only when people make independent decisions and someone could calculate these. Howe emphasises the creativity of the electronic crowd as a formless, constantly chattering, invisible unit. Mm. Leading ultimately to fake news. When was that written? This was in 2008, so it was kind of maybe just before or just as um, crowdsourcing as we know it currently was kind of starting to take off. That's got to be one of the first uses of crowdsourcing, surely. In the, in the FT. Or when was the word coined? Yeah, I don't know. The word crowdsourcing was first used in October 2006 by Howe. But, uh, but I, mm. I think the point you make, Helen, is that is that, that optimistic view, mm. you could definitely take a more a darker mm. approach to looking at it now. as, as Which was probably unimaginable in 2008. Yeah. That's it for the current series. My thanks to all the columnists who took part in the Business Book Challenge. John Thornhill, Sarah Gordon, Mike Skopinka, Lucy Calloway, Emma Jacobs and Andrew Hill. And thank you to Isabel Berwick and to Yanina Conboy. 
For those in search of business book Christmas gifts, the FT's business book site, with all the books longlisted for the FT Book Awards since 2005, can be found by googling FT Best Business Books. Look out for our bonus episode in January, where Andrew Hill will be showing us how to write a business book. And the rest of us will be back in 2017 with more of the best in business writing. Send us your ideas for books for the new series by emailing businessbookclub at ft.com or by tweeting us with the hashtag FTBizBooks. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>